Welcome to our podcast. Good news, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Jay Van Skyver, uh, the Industrials and Materials Sector Head at Hedge Eye Risk Management, and we are going to talk Tesla today with uh, Quoth the Raven, uh, Chris Irons. Uh, and the format for today will be, uh, we're going to go through some quick slides. I'm going to actually outline, uh, to annoy everybody, the bull case. Uh, and then we're going to uh, uh, go through and have a discussion where I guess Chris and I will, will kind of shred the bull case. But I think sometimes the bull case gets misrepresented and, and presented as kind of uh, silly and stupid, so we want to put one out that's a little bit more robust. Um, and uh, Chris, you on the line with us here? I am. What is going on? How are you? Great. Um, so uh, I have to read a brief disclaimer, um, uh, which I will uh, apparently stumble through. Uh, Hedge Iris Management is a registered investment advisor uh, registered in the state of Connecticut. Hedge Iris Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice to, for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. The research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. The presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgehog risk management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of Hedgehog risk management and are intended solely for the use of Hedge Iris Management clients and subscribers. Um, for additional information, uh, you know, uh, reach out to, I guess, uh, sales at hedgeye.com or, or our compliance department. Uh, and with that, uh, or Hedge Iris Management is not responsible for the validity or uh, authenticity of the information upon which it has relied. So with that out of the way, that mouthful. Um, yeah, all that stuff goes for me, too. Just do your research elsewhere and don't listen to anything that I say. I don't have any licenses or any of that stuff. So that's my disclaimer. And try to have, you know, have a couple of drinks before you listen also, too. It helps out. Perfect. So as, as Chris would say, ditto. Uh, so just quickly on slide four, I just want to run through um, some slides with some interesting, I think, data. Uh, so the slides are available on the link uh, in the invite. So if you look on slide four, the, the sort of the, the big picture, I don't know whether we can get them on the video, there you go, just the, uh, the one right before that, we just kind of go through today. One thing I see in, in social media is what I would consider an echo chamber of short information about Tesla. It's all bad, all the time, and I think that people miss a lot of the things that the long community actually, the people who actually own Tesla think. We are an institutional research provider. I run around and I meet with people and U.S., Canada, different countries, I go to uh, London, maybe even uh, different parts of, of the United Kingdom, uh, and meet with people who actually own um, Tesla shares. I have a much uh, better sense, I think, of what their case is than maybe certain people like a, like a Ross Gerber, uh, you know, in terms of understanding why they stick with Tesla, what their vision is, where they think it goes, and that's what we want to talk about today. I think there's an assumption that the longs are idiots and don't know how to read an income statement, and that is not true. They're also smartish. Uh, and I think that oftentimes the short community focuses on the wrong metrics, things like earnings and whatever, uh, earnings revisions that are just not of interest to the people that the uh, short community would need to sell in order for their short thesis to work out. Uh, so one thing that people on slide five tend to focus on is earnings revisions. Well, that hasn't worked. Uh, if you go to the next slide, you guys, I don't know if you can do that. There you go. Earnings revisions hasn't worked, right? Earnings have been revised negatively for years. It's not new. Uh, Tesla loses money. That's not news to the people who own it. They also burn a good deal of cash there on the right. Not news, not a metric that the longs are focused on. Um, have we forgotten how to fraud? On the next slide, realistically, if you're going to bother to commit accounting fraud, you should at least get there by pre presenting a profit. Uh, accounting fraud specifically uh, is something that if Tesla is doing, they're not very good at. I don't think it's a particularly a remarkable line of work. And if you look at like an Enron on the right there, they were reporting profits, right? That's something different uh, when they didn't have them. But uh, Tesla is telling you they lose gobs of money and burn gobs of cash, and that's not really the point. Uh, the shorts, I think, vastly underestimate how strong the Tesla brand is. This is the core 
Uh, if you look at slide seven, this is a survey we run, uh, a, few, a few of the more recent ones. Uh, you know, the first time we ran this, we started running this, I guess, a little while ago, and we sort of tried to keep a consistent set of uh, questions. But about 90% of people surveyed, just 85 or 87% of people surveyed, think that uh, Tesla has better initial quality, better build quality than Toyota. Mind you, most manufacturers, not just car manufacturers, uh, have adopted uh, strategies from like Toyota, Lexus, people like that. And what we see is, in fact, the brand is so strong that people think that Tesla is doing a better job. Of course, we all know that that isn't necessarily entirely accurate, but that's the brand perception, and that's who buys the cars. These are potential car buyers. Next one, slide eight. This is amazing to me, right? This is uh, how many people heard some bad news or negative things about Tesla cars uh, in the last six months. And incredibly, that first one there on the left is 3% of respondents, then it goes to like 75 and then back down to 65 What we hear uh, at, as a short and what we follow very closely in the name doesn't filter out all that well to the general public. Um, the next sec slide is slide nine. Uh, we pointed out that we've seen a decline in 2016, 15, 14, you know, used Model S prices as HOV restrictions have come off in California. We don't think it's AP2 or anything like that. We think it's very clearly we can, we can actually disaggregate that. Uh, but, the, you know, the longs will correctly point out that's remarkably good depreciation. In fact, if you look at 2012 Model S's, they actually hold their value really well. I think it's like $52,000. Uh, average value, right? And 2017 remarkably hasn't depreciated at all. If you look at competitive entry, that's an unproven bare point. The I-PACE was delayed. We see uh, the Chevy Bolt not selling all that well. You know, I guess particularly since Model 3 is ramped up, there's reasons for all these things. But the reality is competitive entry hasn't put Tesla out of business, as we pointed out at one point that Model 3 is closer to a Tesla killer than anything else. Um, you know, we're looking at ASPs, average selling prices for the Model 3 increasing through into the third quarter, right? This is something that will actually help results. This is one reason that people think that profitability in the third quarter isn't completely unreasonable or stupid. Uh, it probably won't work out that way, but, you know, the reality is that Tesla's been very good at moving the ball, right? So you just need to get through another quarter, right? And then we're going to be in the fourth quarter. Well, fourth quarter is probably going to have the tax credit expiration pre-buy, and who knows what they'll come up with in the first quarter of 2019. If you string together a bunch of things like this, you get yourself out of trouble and you, you, know, you kind of keep moving along and growing uh, production, which is what we see on slide 12. So what do bulls get really excited about? They get excited about this. This is genuinely pretty impressive. Uh, you know, Tesla is growing U.S. sales or global sales or production or whatever you want to call it really quickly. That's a growth stock. You know, and these guys have been trained over and over again that losses in names like Amazon don't matter, you know, or, you know, eventually if they just get big enough. Now, I am perfectly willing to acknowledge that auto manufacturing is a different thing. I'm just saying the longs look at that and they think that matters. The losses don't. Eventually they'll get there and scale. Is Elon Musk a wingnut? You know, is using drugs like a, a sign that it's, it's like a total mess? You know, I think the reality is, is that, you know, the, the, when we meet with longs, they do say, they think of him as like a modern-day Edison, and you only get people like this once every, you know, generation or whatever it is, and you got to bet on them, you got to bet on them big, right? Uh, the reality is, is that he is pretty amazing in many ways, whether or not he's the best engineer ever or the best at battery chemistry or whatever it is. He is really good at developing a vision, promoting that vision, getting people who are talented to execute that vision. Does he have great success, self-control, things like that? Hey, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, but, you know, we're sitting around here discussing him, so how irrelevant can he be, you know? I actually think that putting the Tesla in space was great art, if nothing else. Um, you know, so slide 14, some other points we hear, like they can't raise equity. Why not? Like everyone knows the SEC is investigating them. The reason why not is that they don't want to, I think, contradict their own guidance. They're telling you they're going to be profitable and generating cash. If that's true, they don't need to raise equity, so they don't want to contradict themselves. I'm pretty sure that Elon, you know, can see that that would undermine his own guidance. Uh, the SEC is probably not going to take down Tesla. That doesn't seem particularly likely. It could happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just like, why, when has the SEC gone and sort of knocked out a champion like, you know, a stock like Tesla? I mean, I recognize all these kinds of problems with it, but that just isn't usually, you know, the Tesla or the. Uh, 
SEC tends to come in and clean up messes. And Musk probably isn't going to get fired anytime soon, right? Like, that's just not especially likely because uh, the stock, it would basically put the board in the position of tanking the stock, which would not necessarily be a great idea. So we do a lot of data collection, Hedgeye. You know, we are institutional. We're all pretty much ex-buy-siders. Like, I was, I've only ever been on the buy side, long only, prop desk, long short, hedge fund. Uh, I've been humbled repeatedly by the market. Like, I get it. So we have a lot of data. We do a lot of things to check that we're on the right track. One of them, um, and I can't just give out all the data on this because it is for institutions, but, uh, you know, our goal is to democratize research. We do track test drive availability for, for uh, Tesla, you know, how, how many test drives are, are people test driving Teslas. Uh, and what's interesting is we do start to see a decrease beyond seasonal norms uh, in test drive availability. So people do seem to be showing up at Tesla stores less often. Uh, to drive these things. Part of that's because Model 3 test drives are available, but part of this is for SNX specifically. But more generally, I do think the brand is starting to show cracks and that Tesla stock is not going to go down until we see the brand break. Uh, that's going to be the big thing. So, Chris, uh, I want to turn it over to you for a bit because I just monologued. I want to say already. I mean, I, I have a million things just to, just to say about what you just said about. I mean, I don't know if we have a format here or whatever. We do. Uh, can I just... Okay, good, perfect. Go to so what? Which do you think is the most vulnerable of those things? Well, I just want to address two of the things that you said that I just think of. I'm not taking notes or anything, but two things off the top of my head that just struck me as worth mentioning. The first is you say that you know they're not out there selling equity, and you know everybody knows that the SEC investigation is going on, um, but you think that the company isn't issuing equity because they don't want to go against their own guidance. Um, and I would just remind everybody that they had a chance to, you know, th the last time they did a financing and they sold that junk bond, uh, the stock was at $350 as well. Um, and that was prior to this whole mess. So it certainly looked like either the company chose to go the debt route, maybe, I guess, I guess if they, so they could say, hey, we're not diluting, even though, you know, they're leveraging, to, you know, so six one happens on the other. Um, or... They, there may not have been demand for it, which, you know, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I, I certainly found their last bond issuance as very peculiar, as do a lot of other people who are skeptics of the company that I talk to. Nobody can really figure out what the advantage is of, of going out and issuing this paper when, when the stock's at $350 a share instead of selling stock. That's, that's number one. Uh, number two is, you know, you're saying, well, the board isn't going to fire him and it would tank the stock. And it's like, I'm sorry that it's inconvenient for the board to do their job, but there needs to be some governance here, okay? There needs to be some accountability. And I agree with a lot of the things that you said, and I'm, I'm really happy that you're going through the bull case because I think, too, you know, we were talking about this earlier this week, that Twitter has become a lot of a huge echo chamber for a lot of the short arguments, and that I think that, you know, they are out there en masse, and that the bull case by intelligent bull investors isn't being ubiquitously represented. Um, and I do agree with you that there are many, you know, there's probably many smart, bullish, uh, you know, many smart people that own the stock for reasons that shorts don't give them credit for. So I think it's, I think it's better than not to address it at the angle that you're addressing it at. What I will say, though, is with regard to your statement about the board, okay, the, the problem here, in my opinion, is that the board has been beholden to Elon Musk and not the other way around, all right? And we saw it, in my opinion, we saw it with his recent new pay package, which I did a whole podcast on explaining why I personally believe that to be an insult to everybody's intelligence because all of his all of his milestones in that pay package were all these arbitrary milestones you know a market cap of 100 billion that nothing had anything to do with cash flow nothing had anything to do with uh, net income I think there was one small EBITDA milestone in there. there there may have been if I remember correctly but the other one I think had to do with market cap or had to do with stock price and and the point of the matter is if you already have a company that's valued at $60 billion, you don't have to do anything productive to turn it into a $100 billion company. 
you could just go out and issue a bunch of stock and make a bunch of acquisitions, or you could go out and take on debt and make a bunch of acquisitions. I mean, you could do anything. You, could, you know, the market could just value the company as it stands today as a $100 billion market cap company. So the increase in market cap doesn't necessarily equal an increase in Elon Musk's productivity, which is why I thought his pay package was so stupid. But let oh, me just go back to the board. Let me just go back to the board for a second, okay? Like, I, I understand what you're saying, that, like, the board can't fire him because the stock will go down. But that is such an asinine argument, okay? The board has a job to do. And your job when you're the board is to govern the executives at the company. You have a fiduciary to the shareholders of the company. And, look, sometimes that means you have to make difficult decisions. And I think what's going on now, in my opinion, we're seeing – a board of directors that had been very complacent over the last couple of years. Otherwise, I don't. I personally can't conceive of why they would just lay down on something like the Solar City acquisition. But in my opinion, you have a board that's been very complacent over the last couple of years, and all of a sudden, they had the opportunity to tell this guy to stop tweeting, to stop putting out this crazy shit on Twitter. You know, they had an opportunity to rein him in after he made the pedophile comment which I thought was a ridiculous thing to say. And just think about this, okay? If Satya Nadella does that, if Mary Barra does that, if Tim Cook does that, if any other CEO goes out and makes a statement like that on Twitter, they answer to the board immediately. Next day, there are repercussions. There are, you know, uh, special investigatory committees put together. There's all cut, And at the very least, there are repercussions that don't involve him being fired, him or her. Chris, but let for me, the uh... most part... Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Okay. I'm not done yet. One second. For the most part, most CEOs would wind up probably having to resign after saying that's something that's stupid. Okay, so the board had their chance there, and now all of a sudden we have this instance where he's come out and he has made this proclamation, which I read today before I got on the phone with you again. You know, everything's said. Investors have the opportunity to sell at 420, which is basically what he tweeted out. And you have a stock that's at 320. All right. The board now, I think, is starting to understand that this guy created a massive legal liability for them. And I think what has been a board of probably some complacency is now starting to wake up a little bit. So, again, the last thing I'll say about this is I'm sorry that it's inconvenient for the board to reprimand Elon Musk. And I'm sorry if it's inconvenient for the board to hold him accountable to what he's done. But the fact is, the board is personally liable if they don't do it. So the excuse that, oh, the stock would go down is bullshit because they have a job to do and they need to do it. Well, I mean, I think the board's job is to represent shareholder interests, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, hiring the management team and stuff like that is, is all part of that. I just don't know what firing Elon Musk here would solve. I think it would actually just, you know, make it all worse. Reining him in, making him potentially like non-executive chairman at the most extreme uh, version of it, you know, maybe get a great operating person in there as they need to execute well, on that, mass production. That's what I took that to mean. Right? Okay. Yeah, but I don't he think... He needs yeah. to be taken out of his position. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I think, you know, he's a, the ultimate key figure risk when you think about, like, uh, you know, sort of the uh, the risk management of a, of a company, like, you end up with one of the key risks being a key figure risk. I think that is, in fact, uh, a great example of it. Um but that doesn't matter. That doesn't give him carte blanche to go out and do whatever the hell he wants just because he's the guy that, you know, he, if he was a private company, he could do whatever he wanted. But this is a public company. And just because, you know, you happen to be a risk factor and the company is relying upon your expertise, that doesn't give you carte blanche to just go out and say and do whatever the hell you want to do. No, but how, how, if you were on the board, what would you do? And don't give me the Jim Grant answer or resign. What, what, what would you do to sort of rein him in? Well, if, if I was on the board, I would either threaten to... Re the first thing I would be doing right now is I would be speaking to my own personal attorney. <laughs> because I could... You know, I, I don't, it's not even funny. I mean, that's... No, that's it's true. you got to get your own lawyer. And I, I agree. Think, I think the more, the more that people laugh this stuff off is what has created this kind of you know, culture of non-accountability for this guy. And I understand he's extremely intelligent and I, he's much smarter probably than I'll ever be. I get all that, you know, like that makes, that all makes sense to me. I'm not, I, I think you're solidly smartish. <laughs> okay. But if I was on the board, I would, I would have retained my own personal counsel 
and I would be taking their advice and I would be trying to act in as conservative of a fashion to cover my own personal ass as possible first. And then I would be, you know, I don't even know. I would really, I would be going on the advice of my counsel. That would be it at this point. If the counsel told me to resign, I would resign. If my counsel told me to stay on and try to, you know, get this guy under control, if you're saying I'm forced into a spot where I have to stay on the board and I have to try and control him, I mean, look, what I would do is if, if I was on the board of directors for this company, this is exactly what I would push. Elon Musk has to step, step out of a CEO role and he has to move to a non-executive chairman role, number one. We, they have to get somebody that has a, a, you know, a background of success on the street, like Gerber mentioned Sheryl Sandberg the other day on my podcast. Somebody with some pedigree would need to come in. I don't even care if it's auto industry pedigree. I just need somebody with a brain and some common sense that knows how the capital markets work. Then I would withdraw any and all guidance I've ever made, and I would sit down with the rest of the board and the executives to figure out exactly what the most conservative possible projections for everything, production, you know, revenue guidance, uh, I would take I would take all of the potential bad news that could be coming down the pipe and I would get it out there and basically I would just kitchen sink as much as I possibly could. And if that includes a recapitalization that dilutes the equity, maybe I do that. Or if it includes, you know, if my lawyers are telling me that maybe a restructuring is better, I don't know. I follow that route. But if I were the board, this is not the time to be aggressive. It's not the time to be overly optimistic. Is the time to be conservative. It's the time to be truthful with the market. And you know what? Listen, I've told many people this. If they come out, if Elon Musk came out tomorrow and said, hey, guys, listen, I, I really fucked up. I said some stuff I shouldn't have said. I made some projections that I shouldn't have made. And I want to level with the market. Here's what we think is actually possible for this year. Here's what's most likely. And I would lay out the news in as conservative a fashion as possible. And you know what would happen? The stock would go down tomorrow and it would, the, you know, the equity would correct and then life would go on. And that would be it as a public company. If you go out, you know, they're talking about doing a recap now because uh, Gasparino said yesterday on Fox News, maybe they'll recapitalize instead of going private. You know, if they do a recap, that's an opportunity for them to make a huge shift in the culture of this company, the way that it reports to the public. All that stuff has to happen. And, and if they don't do that fast, if they don't make a 180 and about face on the way that they, you know, give the market, the way that they communicate with the market in general, and they don't just change their corporate communication strategy to a more conservative one, in my opinion, then it's just going to be more of the same going forward. And nobody, even a distressed, you know, a specialist in investing in distressed uh companies is going to want to step in and try to bail them out. That, that's an interesting point where I, I disagree with you a little bit in that, I mean, aside from the, obviously, the take private tweet and the tie diver tweet, um, which are, are obviously very problematic, um, corporate communications, I think the corporate communications isn't Tesla's core problem, the way they communicate with the street. I think the fundamental problem with Tesla is that they aren't willing to acknowledge that they are a manufacturing company and develop a manufacturing culture of you know, lean production, continuous improvement, stable design of a car that then they can optimize around, uh, go through a normal development uh, cycle where they test and perfect the product before they go into mass production. I think it's more on the operating side uh, and that you know, on some level the sizzle that they sell, sure, it's not necessarily... Um, the most top-shelf way to communicate with the street. But the reason they can't execute well, it's, it's is they can't produce. It's not a very intelligent way. It's not a very intelligent way to communicate at all with the street. It's, wor it's working for them, though. I mean, they, they do have well, a, the largest market cap of any auto company. Okay, so what happens to a $60 billion market cap when what you're suggesting happens, right? First off, let's talk about operations. And, and we'll be very vague about it, but I do want to address... Lynette Lopez's excellent piece in Business Insider yesterday, or two days ago, where you know she claimed the first production yield of the Model 3 coming off the line was 14%. And 
and that most auto manufacturers average between 65% and 80% on this number. All right, I'll give them, I'll give them a pass because it was the first run of these cars at this rate, okay? But when Musk comes to market and says, I'm going to be able to make so-and-so amount of cars at so-and-so rate, I think in 2017 he was saying at one point we'll be able to make 20,000 of them a month by the end of the year. When this guy comes out and says that, that and, and Ross Gerber made the argument to me yesterday, well, he says it in order to push himself to meet the goal. It's like that's not how you communicate with the market. You're supposed to be making relatively conservative assessments of what is rationally capable by your company. And to come out and to make that type of a statement last year, and then all of a sudden we get this report two days ago, which in my opinion clears up exactly what factory gated meant. It meant that they built 5,000 cars, 4,300 of them needed to be reworked. So that's probably why a bunch of them are sitting out in a lot collecting dust in the middle of California. I don't know that for sure, that's just my opinion. But so if you wanna talk about operations, okay, this is a company that a couple of years ago was insinuating that they were going to have such autonomy and they were going to be so highly advanced with the way that they were producing these vehicles that it was going to blow away the best practices in the industry and it was going to rewrite auto manufacturing as we knew it. I mean, that was the impression that I got from the company. And I'm sure I could go back and pull out some quotes. Oh, the I'm, alien I don't dreadnought. Have anything. No, I... Well, I exactly. well, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me just finish for a second, okay? All right, I mean, you can't come out and say that. And then all of a sudden, you know, hey, well, we found out uh, some of the automated stuff in the factory uh, shouldn't be automated, so we're going to tear that shit out, and we're going to fly some other shit in from Germany now. And then all of a sudden, well, we made this prediction for 5,000 a week, but we gotta build a we got to build a tent now because we don't have the production capacity. You don't, you don't set targets and then, that are unreasonable and then scramble to do all this nonsense to, to, go to, to be able to go to the market and say, hey, we made 5,000 of them when 4,300 of them needed rework. So operationally, what I think this company has been pitched, which is as a company that's going to revolutionize how auto manufacturing is done and what the reality is that they're basically scraping together crap to try and you know, meet the goals that they were stating that they could put together, I think are two completely different things. And if the market values this company like a traditional auto manufacturer, which is what they are, you know, and if they ever go profitable, I mean, all you have to do is compare Tesla's valuation to yeah, to Ford. Unless there's something huge that I'm missing here, that this company should be afforded a $60 billion market cap. Are they sitting on something that I don't know about that, that is supposed to afford them this market? Otherwise, they should be trading at seven times earnings like GM or six times earnings, they're, they're a nut and bolt auto manufacturer in that case. And in that case, the valuation collapses. And if you value them like that now, you know, what's seven times zero in earnings? It's nothing. I mean, I don't think the company's worth nothing. I think what you said about having brand equity is a very good point that a lot of shorts miss. And I just said this in an interview with a journalist the other day who was telling me, you know, oh, well, bankruptcy this and, and you know, I said, look, there is some brand equity in Tesla, and that all I will concede that. Um, I think there's some brand equity in the name. I think there's some brand equity in Elon Musk, but the financials are atrocious, and that's that's what short sellers are looking for. Well, I, I think the so I guess the point that I want to make is that one you point out is that they they put out targets and they missed them, and they were ridiculous targets, the board you know bordering on mendacity or whatever you want to call it. The problem is is that that hasn't ever affected the stock price. So if, if the only reason, I guess, in theory, market operators look at fundamentals in a company is because it's supposed to help us predict where the stock price goes. And if your approach to trying to guess where the stock price is going to go is based on them setting a target and then missing it, and the stock is supposed to go down, it just, it just hasn't worked as a strategy, and you know, sort of in that, that you should probably find a new strategy if that isn't working. Um, so what... I, what I think is going to be the key to the story is that bad manufacturing or challenged manufacturing, I don't mean to be too extreme about that, but as you point out, like they have a high uh, defect rate off the line. That's not something that just started with Model 3. We did a lot of field work talking to the quality control people. 
you know, ex-employees after an appropriate time. We don't cheat or anything, but uh, you know, we do do our field work and talk to people who who know the answers. I think there's perfectly reasonable reasons to do that. Um, you know, the reality is, is that they've had a high defect rate offline the the whole time. Like that's not something that just started with Model Three. Um, and the question is, like, if that's tolerable in a very high-end car where the person has time to take it to a service center or whatever, uh, maybe it's not tolerable in a mass production environment. So I guess my question is, what do you think takes out well, the brand? It, it's not tolerable. It's not tolerable to begin with. No auto manufacturer is going to tell you it's tolerable to have products roll off the line that aren't operating the way they're supposed to. I understand that the industry average is 65 to 80%, and I also, I, I've worked in a plant, I understand in manufacturing, not everything is gonna roll off the line perfectly, okay? But for anybody to just, for no auto manufacturer is gonna say, all right, that's acceptable, because it's not, that's number one. Number two, the rate, the reported rate that Lynette Lopez wrote about two days ago, and, and they said, okay, they, they require 30% less labor hours after that, is still well below the industry average, number one, which means that there is a horrible misuse of time and resources and capital. I mean, if these guys were doing everything perfectly, I think it would be difficult for them to be you know, valued the way that they are now. But they're not. Just as Musk is, in my opinion, misallocating his time and his energy sending David Einhorn care packages, okay? Like, what is that? I, I love that stuff. <laughs> I don't. I think I, it's, it's ridiculous. I think, if he's, I think if he's Tim Cook, okay, if he's Tim Cook and they're the most profitable company in history and they got $230 billion on the balance sheet in cash, then it's okay to have a joke. But I think in this instance, every second that this guy spends not focusing on his responsibility as CEO is absurd. And I think it's ridiculous. So this is another thing we'll agree to disagree on. If you want to laugh that off and say, all right, that, you know, that's acceptable behavior for a guy that's in his position right now, that's not how I would be running my company. Absolutely not. So, every day that the balance sheet looks like it does right now and every day that we weren't profitable, I would be focusing on that only. So anyways, the point I'm trying to make is just as he is personally misallocating, I think, his time and his resources. I think the company may be doing the same with production. And then for him to go to the New York Times and say, oh, I don't have enough time. There's not enough time in the day. It's like, get the fuck off Twitter. You know, let's go. Focus on what you're doing. Focus on your work. I mean, that should be the focus. The guy's worth $20 billion. He just signed a pay package that could pay him whatever 80 billion or 50 billion i forget what it is but focus on your job focus on what you're doing well and then once you're successful then you can come out and joke about it then you send david Einhorn a package well let me, let me ask you a question so none of none of the things so far have broken the brand nothing is filtered out to the general public uh where we see in surveys really a lot of impact on how people perceive tesla and you know I know people say, like, they build a car for a dollar and sell it for 80 cents, but I'm pretty sure that if I build a car for a dollar and tried to sell it for 80 cents, no one would want it anyway. What, what do you think would actually take out the brand? And then we have to go to Q&A. Well, I think, uh, I really don't know. It's going to take a public loss of confidence in Elon Musk, and I don't know if that'll ever happen. I mean... How many times during the Trump campaign did people come out and say, oh, this is it, like Trump is ruined, you know, after like the, the Billy Bush tape and, you know, after all the comments that he made, there were so many times where like, this is it, the pundits were like, the campaign's over, you know, Trump is done, and what did he do? He came out and he won the election. So I think that Musk has that working for him. Um, I think, look, what will take down the company will either be this guy will do something that causes the public to turn on him, which I think he's getting closer to. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're the closest we've ever been. Or there is some type of legal or financial impasse that the company reaches that does not allow them to continue the way that they've been going. Whether it's, whether it's defaulting on debt or whether it is 
legal advice to the board that they should be doing something else or it is, you know, some other type of impact, um, that I think could, could take them out. When you say take out the brand, I mean, I assume you're talking about the, 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 you know, the favorable impression of the brand itself. Well, the, the, the line of people waiting to buy the, the cars is sort of the idea. Um, I want to I get going uh, on to QA. I'll just, my opinion is, is that the uh, roll-off of the uh, tax credit, uh, loss of HOV, and not just in the U.S., but also in places like the Netherlands and some states, restricting it to 60,000, uh, quality issues that we see with the Model 3 bumpers coming off, things like that. Uh, and restrictions on things like HOV uh, access for older Teslas, which impact used Tesla prices, uh, and then finally, um, you know, competitive entry eventually uh, make Tesla sort of a less unique outlier, make it harder for them to sell. But um, how, how does the Q how does the Q and A work? Um, I don't know. This is. There's a, I hope you're not asking me. No, I'm not asking you. I'm, I'm hoping Eric will give me the, uh, a feed with the questions because uh, I have uh, currently just uh, K's and Q's in front of me. Um, great. So, uh, uh, okay. So, question. Uh, the Bulls don't make a good case uh, because they can't. Production has tripled since 2015, but the losses per car have increased. Uh, Tesla isn't realizing economies of scale uh, that were promised a year ago. Um, like, how do we respond to that, I guess, is the question there. And my response yeah. is that, yeah, I agree. But uh, partly I'd say the bulls would respond saying that, like, look, they're only at 100,000 cars. What if they're, or 200,000 cars, what if they're at, like, 500,000, right? If they can keep, if they can keep funding losses uh, maybe start to narrow it a little bit, ramp up, get a Model Y. They get an installed base. They can start getting service revenue. Uh, you know, it, it, there's no rule that says it has to end in um, you know 2019 or 2020. They can keep this going until they actually do get enough scale. Well, and, and then what, Jay? Then they get valued like a traditional auto manufacturer. Then they get valued like a car company if that happens. You know what's interesting? When I meet with investors, I would put them in two broad categories who own Tesla. One are people who believe in the deep and infinite demand for the Tesla brand. The people who, uh, you know, basically say people want these cars. The people who look at the 420 reservations for the Model 3 and think, yes, that is why I own Tesla. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me. The other category are typically more on the West Coast, and they tend to focus a lot on things like the Adam Jonas uh, uh, coverage, although now I guess he's suspended, but things like Tesla Mobility, like that ARK investment letter, not quite as extreme, but things like, you know, what what could they that actually kind, sell? The self-driving that stuff. Shit, that uh, kind of shit would never fly if we were not 10 years into a bull market and people were not just completely numb with euphoria, okay? This is a car company that is making cars. That's what's going on right now, right? No, and I agree. I think people don't understand that something like automobile manufacturing is a well-developed, highly competitive, narrow-margin, capital-intensive industry uh, with exactly. a lot of um, you know, very experienced competitors who can bring an enormous amount of pressure to bear that makes it hard to be an outlier. But I think... They look at also things that we don't talk about because I don't think lithium-ion batteries are a particularly good solution for it, but things like putting batteries on the grid are uh, an important technology change that's coming to the infrastructure uh, of power grids that, that do, you know, for a place like New York City, uh, make it easier because it's hard to add capacity. Currently, I don't think the, at least when I looked a year ago, the fire department in New York wouldn't let you put lithium-ion batteries in any bulk. Uh, it's, more, it's more of a weapon than a... Uh, Part of a grid, but uh, you know, but that's another aspect. Like the sort of the, the you know what they did in Australia could become a bigger part of the business. There's a lot of degrees of freedom on the technology side, and you can play kind of whack-a-mole. But eventually, they get you on one you haven't really explored enough or something. Um, I think saltwater batteries or other kind of batteries make a lot more sense. But they, yeah, there's two pretty broad categories uh, of investors there that. Um, I think it's easier to deal with the former than the latter, because uh, the latter, I think, is kind of uh, nebulous and, to your point, just ridiculous. And it's just a product of a, of a 
yeah, like a seven-year expansion here, a nine-year expansion. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, Jay, they had $1.6 billion in cash as of 812. Uh, shout out to Charlie Grant if he's listening. I think that was, well, I saw it on his retweet. I'm not sure if that was his reporting. Excluding the uh, overseas cash, uh, $200 million restricted, blah, 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 uh, with $3 billion in payables. If only they pay 15% of payables, they are under a billion in cash now. Doesn't seem like much runway with upcoming cash requirements. Thanks. I agree. I think the question I have for you, Chris, is do you think they could raise $2 billion in equity without it being a particularly big deal? Uh, you mean just like in a straight you know, equity sale at maybe like a discount? Yeah, like Norway or Saudi Arabia. Probably. I think, I think right now they probably could. It would probably have to be attractive terms. Um, I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I can't really, I can't really figure out where I stand on that because I find it peculiar that they haven't. I find it peculiar that they didn't the last time they wanted to raise money. Um, but I was talking last night about what they could do in a recap uh, situation with my very intelligent and very good friend Kubiko. And we were both talking around the idea of if they wanted to do some type of recap, could they do it with like convertible preferreds that have tons of preferences to them? And, uh, you know, that perhaps a well-known investor could come in and buy if they wanted to sell something like $5 billion in convertible preferreds with extremely generous terms, warrants and dividends and coverage and all types of things. Uh, would they be able to do that? And, and I do think that that's probably possible. Um, and I wrote as much in, a, in an article that I wrote last night that um, was published today to Seeking Alpha, just basically talking about what I think about recapitalization uh, possibilities. So uh, I, I think it's possible. I mean, I think it's really nice that you bring up the bull points because I think people do forget that this is a $60 billion company. Um, sometimes big companies do fall very quickly. Sometimes the market wakes up one morning and, and the institutional holders decide that they have to puke their stock for one reason or another. Um, but until that happens, I mean, it's difficult for me to, I even told the reporter today, you know, I don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow and the company is going to be bankrupt. I mean, there's a lot of people that disagree with me. Um, I, I hope I'm wrong uh, as a short seller, but I, I, I just don't see that as a realistic scenario for, for one reason or another. And I think this goes back to what you're saying about Twitter being an echo chamber for, you know, a lot of negativity, which I think is the case. I think it's important to see the other side of the coin, too. And I, I just want to address one more thing real quick. And that's I'm sitting in front of my computer here and I'm watching my Twitter feed as, as the webcast is going on. And, you know, one person has commented, oh, I have a lot of outrage about it. And, and another person has said, uh, you know, they think I'm taking Elon Musk personally, whatever. And I just want to address those statements real quick, okay? I'm not taking any of this personally. I don't take it personally at all. For me, as a percentage of capital, this is a relatively small investment for me, right? But what I am doing is I'm trying to just break through and cut through what, you know, I'm trying to cut through the current, uh, what the current kind of media and public narrative is about the behavior of the CEO and the behavior of this company. And so, you know, I, I don't take it personally when you joke about Elon Musk doing stupid things, but I think it's really important to also remember that this is a public company, okay? And, and, and as such, it is included in indices and it's included in ETFs that are tied to Everybody's investments, 401ks, pension funds. There are people that have exposure to this company that don't even know that they have exposure to it. There are people out there that, you know, have financial products that one way or another have exposure to this company and they don't know about it. Okay, so on behalf of those people, all I'm trying to do is bring in a little dose of reality here and remind everybody that there is another side to the story, aside from this long bias, rosy kind of picture that everybody is always painting. And, and personally, I don't find his behavior as a public company executive 
acceptable. I just don't find it acceptable. It's not somebody I want to invest in, and it wouldn't want, it wouldn't be somebody I would want to work for, and perhaps that's why so many executives have left. And it's not how I would conduct myself as a officer or director of a public company. No, and I so, hear you. I, I would also I'm, just I'm say not, I'm not outraged. I'm just trying to provide what I think is a much needed reality check here. That's it. I, I think it's also worth just saying that um, simply because somebody has a view that the equity share price of Tesla is more likely to decline than not, it does not reflect a desire to see Tesla fail or that we hate the environment or anything like that. I happen to like, I, I, I unlike, I think you, I think his behavior in the last few months has been unacceptable, definitely. I don't mean to dismiss that. But mostly, I think he's kind of funny, and I, I mean, I even think, I think most of it's like pretty funny. I think he's pretty smart. Maybe he doesn't spend enough time there. Maybe the board doesn't give any oversight and whatever. But uh, you know, I, I don't think that people should look at somebody who thinks the equity value shouldn't. I think, and Elon is guilty of this, of conflating a bearish view on an equity share price with wishing to see Tesla fail or spreading fear uncertainty and doubt. But let, let me go to the next question, uh, which is... I think, I think somebody put a post after the New York Times article came out uh, over the weekend. Somebody put up a post that said, you know, I'm really pulling for Elon Musk's mental health. And I retweeted that post. I forget who it was off the top of my head, but I retweeted the post because I feel the same way. And I think it's really important that people understand that because you think the equity, which is just a piece of a company in part of its capital structure is worth less than what the public markets are valuing it for. I don't wish harm on Elon Musk. I don't wish harm on the board. I've said on my podcast over and over, I think he's a very smart guy. I've said if they, you know, produce profitability, you know, over the course of a year and they can do it consistently, that I will walk back things that I've said, that I will issue an apology for my analysis being incorrect. I don't have any personal beef with him at all. I really don't have any personal beef with anybody. I mean, I think his behavior is erratic, and that contributes to a lot of the arguments that short sellers make. But just because I think one piece of the capital structure is worth less than what the public is valuing it for, doesn't mean I have ill feelings or ill intent towards him or the company. I think the vision is a beautiful vision. I really do. Maybe they just don't understand uh, what it's like to be from Philly. Let me, let me just hit the last question because we have to wrap, uh, wrap this up here, uh, which is that what near-term catalyst next three to six months do you see as a compelling, as com- do you see compelling major institutional holders to begin doubting their investment in Tesla? And equally importantly, how are major institutions uh, making sense of to what degree they are, int- well, how are they just making sense of what's going on and the go private? The last one, I think, is really hard to read, but I'll deal with the first one, uh, which is the three to six month, which is in uh, January 1st, right? Uh, cars registered in California before Jam 1 2017 lose access to HOV lanes. Uh, I think, now I know some people will say like, oh, HOV lanes are so crowded. It's like, yeah, well, I'm in California a lot and sometimes they're not. And it's better if you have a driver because you can go in the HOV lane. It's probably better if you have a Tesla second. Tax credit starts to roll off. For every $5,000 of price increase of car, the market contracts by about a third. I don't think people are thinking that through. You're going to see the tax credit drop by $3,750 in January, which means that you will see a contraction in the available market uh, for Teslas that is is very significant in Arden. And maybe it won't matter for Tesla or it won't play out that way, but the general rule is that it's about five dollars or $6,000, a third of the market, above $30,000. Like, obviously, small lower down, that doesn't quite work. Uh, and then thirdly, we do have a lot of competing vehicles coming out. Um, and those, like the Jaguar I-Pace, will have a $7,500 tax credit. By the middle of you know uh, next year, you'll be potentially buying an I-Pace uh, with $7,500 and looking at a Model X with you know 1700 or whatever that number comes out to be. Uh, and that those are three pretty big catalysts. I don't know that you have any, Chris. Oh, sorry, I lost you there for a second. Oh, um, just do you, have, do you see any like big catalysts in the next three, six months? I think in terms of the question that you just asked, I don't, you know, uh, what's gonna, what, 
what it's going to take for institutional holders to, to dump their shares. Um, look, they've a lot of them have held on this long. I think Fidelity recently just lightened up their stake to the best of my uh, recollection. I think that if the company reaches a financial or a legal impasse, uh, which are both, I think, are possible, then I think there could be a, uh, a race to the exits from institutions. I think, I, I really don't know. I mean, it, it would have to be some type of overwhelming legal liability. I think if the SEC winds up coming out on the more intense side in the way that they reprimand Musk, that that could have something to do with it. Um, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I really don't. I don't know what it's, but for a situation like a Valiant, you know, where all the institutions woke up one morning and realized, holy shit, like we shouldn't be holding this stock. And by the way, why have we even been holding it this far? If all this stuff was going on, you know, aside from a moment where everybody kind of realizes all at once and then there's capitulation. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm baffled that people hold it now. I mean, especially people that have owned it for a while and have done exceptionally well on it. Well, they've, they've mostly been right, and I think there have been other names that look a lot like it that have done well. I think I'm getting the sign here that we have to wrap it up, um, Chris. Okay. But thank you so much uh, for dialing in, for everyone who's, who's listened. Um, you know, take a look at the slides. I think, you know, seeing the other side, getting out of the echo chamber for bears uh, is really important. You know, uh, somebody wrote in here, like, uh, why are 200 puts 9 bucks? It's like, yeah. Trust me, after, uh, after the financial crisis, being long vol can hurt as if, if it comes down. Um, and, you know, watch. Let's, we'll see. We'll see how much tax credit's expiring, uh, the decline in residual values matters, how much, um, you know, the uh, competitive entrance matter to, to Tesla's brand, and uh, how the product quality uh, develops in, uh, in the coming months. So thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, thank you, Chris, for doing this with us. It was awesome being here. Let's do it again tomorrow, okay? The next time we're doing it uh, at a Philly cheesesteak place, okay? <laughs> All right, brother. We'll talk. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. As a reminder, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at Hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.